0: Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined again by my friend Eric and we will be talking about Christopher Nolan's new movie Dunkirk. Hello Eric. Hello Titus. how are you this morning? Oh, I'm doing swell and I'm happy to have you here because you're the only other person I talked to about the movie who spontaneously used the adjective Homeric to describe the movie. So let's start here. Tell me your reaction to the movie.
1: Well, it was receiving such great praise from so many people that I know and trust. And I thought, I have to go see this film. And I sat in the theater and it darkened and the film began. And very quickly, one finds oneself in a very different world in this movie. And it was indeed Homeric. And I think it's because, as the film unfolds, it was the depiction of combat and the depiction of of men who are warriors that struck me as Homeric in the iliad of course we have these great noble characters men like hector and even more so achilles and we also though have the the minutiae and the reality of the horror of combat when when homer describes death in combat it's it's men clutching the ground uh vomiting out their blood it's men being driven with a spear through the skull into darkness there's both a mythic and a gritty realism in homer's tale of troy's war and that same mix were here as well
0: yeah, and the film at the same time has an epic scope
1: that it yes. calls Homer.
0: You get to see both the grandest scale and the up-close events. This is Even how the, um... you get a sense of the wholeness of war. Mm-hmm. That on the one hand, you have personal struggles, and you get to see how perishable it is to be human. But on the other hand, you get a sense of scale and the potential greatness of human action.
1: Yes and I even even I think you know even though there are no gods in this, like they're in Homer, I just, I just thought of this but because of the use of aerial combat, you get a God's eye view of things at times um, yes, and that's you're, true. In, absolutely giving you this, this as you say this the scope of the whole affair
0: and that suggests a potential for human greatness that there are soldiers, but there are also generals. there mm-hmm. are people on the beach, but there are also people in the air. There's a whole variety of human heroism, from the most common to the least, yes. from the usual and... to the highest, and that somehow gives a certain nobility to warfare, actually.
1: Yes, and there's also... It's by no means
0: an anti-war movie, which is no, very surprising not. for a uh, hundred minutes of fear and suffering. It certainly doesn't coddle the audience. This is exactly what America's teenagers need. Instead of a slapped-on happy end to the umpteenth reenactment of 9-11 as New York is digitally destroyed on screen, instead Mm -hmm. of that you get a real event, a, a real war. The fear is real because the danger is focused. The human beings are real. It hits you and it scares you in a way that most things can't now. And that also frees you from the arrogance of hindsight. Your moral imagination is for once unchained. You're forced, like it or not, to follow these characters and to try to understand what's happening. Relief, if any, is earned and temporary, not permanent. And that fits with our age of anxiety and fear. This is certainly not an age of confidence. It fits to have a war movie that is not triumphal.
1: And there are several things I think that work together in the film to, to highlight those things. Number one, the protagonists, they sort of emerge from the chaos or we are put in their perspective and it's that switching back and forth between perspective i think is very masterfully managed by nolan in a cinematic technique but because this is not a battle that's a victory right this is an evacuation after disasters for the french and british armies in europe it precludes the sort of triumphal ending that is so typical of war films or, or the sort of fantasy pseudo war films that are more popular today the other thing is that two of our protagonists are on the border of almost cowardice and yet they're the characters we're drawn to psychologically in many ways
0: Yes, and from the beginning, we are made to follow around a young man, Tommy, who turns out not to be the most honorable or admirable guy, and whose reward for most of the movie is great suffering for yes. trying to get out, as it were, before his orders allow him. This is a remarkably moralistic use of the plot, even as we are supposedly getting the human perspective, following an every man as close to his body and his fears as possible with his limitations limitations. limitations and his hopes, but this young man is by no means flattered. You understand why he does what he does, but it's not admirable.
1: That's right. The other thing that struck me about this in two regards, one is Nolan makes a very deliberate choice, right? We never see the Germans, we never see the Nazis, you know, all of that's excluded. And so the focus is upon the individual, the human body and the psychological and physical terrors of war. These are the most realistic depictions of foundering ships I've ever seen. I happen to be drinking some water at a moment when a ship began to sink and my visceral human reaction was to spit the water out and I had to stop myself from doing it in a theater. That's the sort of power that Nolan imbues movie with
0: Yes, you're afraid for your life as you're afraid for each one of these men's lives. That's a very important thing. it reminds you why it is that we think we're every man or that we're all in it together. This fear mm-hmm. reminds us that we are equal in our mortality and indeed that's something that we usually take for granted that the movies rather than experience. in as much as it's possible to have a psychological correlative of war, this movie does it people i think needed now an age of mm-hmm. anxiety is an age of restlessness people are not at peace in their situation we're living in societies that have more or less outlawed war and certainly outlawed victory in war but where people as citizens as civilians treat each other as enemies instead and Mm -hmm. seem to want nothing more than to ensure the destruction of their partisan adversaries and that's no good yes
1: yes in that sense the mortality
0: Uh, uh, and the fear here being focused give people a chance to experience themselves as a commons as a people together and that's very important. I think that's why you do not hear any talk of the Germans. They're only called the enemy.
1: That's right. It's
0: not about them. It's about us, so to speak.
1: One thing that we discussed earlier and, and, and a thought that I had had previously is that in, in making the enemy faceless and nameless, I mean, it, there's, it, it opens psychologically the possibilities of empathy for any viewer of the that... Film tremendously because it becomes an issue of human fate. And human fate, uh, or if, if you prefer human providence, I think was stamped all over this film. And the, the way in which people meet fates that they don't deserve, uh, or they do deserve is on display throughout. And also because in terms of partisanship, our default mode in politics today, of course, is to say, well, that person's a Nazi, right? And it's, it's a sin of both sides of the political spectrum. And here, you know, we have a, a situation where people were fighting real Nazis. But because that's, not front and center and and the enemy is masked in anonymity almost that can be laid aside and also it removes the 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 precludes the possibility of default our minds going oh well we know we're going to win this because they're nazis and we beat them
0: yeah that's the only reference we have for evil anymore and it's so comfortable because it always announces victory nobody Mm -hmm. calls other people hitler or nazis saying that they're so much more powerful than we are and we're so afraid it's always about how much better we are than people will call nazis or fascists or hitler
1: Yeah, we never call them Stalin, you know, or or Mao. Oh yeah,
0: leaving aside the historical amnesia, there's just this self-satisfaction. Almost as soon as you've called somebody a fascist, you've won. Right. There's no fear there, there's no anticipation of long conflict. And in as much as this is about World War II, Dunkirk shows you so much anxiety, as a friend pointed out to me, because you're at the beginning of the war. Mm-hmm. There will be a war mm-hmm. because the British were not wiped out, but this is just the beginning of the war, just like this is the beginning of our age of anxiety. You yes. don't quite know how this will turn out. You're just learning to be less addicted to unbelievable happy ends and to be more grateful for earned relief.
1: Yes, and the other thing about uh, Dunkirk itself in terms of its its historical placement and its, I think its role in the film and its role in the psychology of the film this is a situation in which the people who are supposed to be the good guys are in essence running away too. And yes. as we know about the British culture, after the horrors of world war one, this huge lack of confidence, you know, the British in the Pacific, uh, in a couple of instances, just surrendered after very, yes, dismal like Singapore, fighting. Singapore, right. Exactly. Comes to mind and not necessarily the enlisted men, but it was the officer class, uh, who were there in, in the name of empire and were just willing to walk away from it. They didn't have that luxury at Dunkirk, uh, Because as Kenneth Branagh's commander says at one point, you know, if we don't do something here, the next place that this battle is going to be is at home.
0: So, Dunkirk is the first time when World War II becomes a matter of survival for Britain. And Mm -hmm. Nolan does great work to prove what it is that Churchill meant when he said to Parliament and to the people, without victory, there is no survival. Mm -hmm. Dunkirk was not a victory, but it was the condition of the possibility of future victories. It was survival now, and it seems like this corresponds at some level to the situation in which we find ourselves, both in terms of a collapse of confidence as a civilization, Mm -hmm. and more particularly as people who are no longer able to confront the question of war. Like the talking about uh, evil in terms of the worst evil, Hitler, people can't talk about anything as evil without bringing that up. If mm-hmm. I sometimes fear that if people wake up tomorrow and they no longer know the word Hitler, they will just not have any words for evil at all. Yes. But uh, just like that comes with an easy assurance of victory that feeds ignorance, you don't have to bother about this anymore. It's over. And therefore, it's not even real anymore. It's not really real. Just like that is a problem, there is a similar problem with war. In the modern world, you can fight a war on anything, cancer, poverty, drugs, any bad thing, but you can never fight a real war where there is an identifiable human enemy who has serious motives and intentions of his own and is therefore dangerous and inscrutable. That is what's intolerable.
1: Exactly. In our age of loss of confidence, and you, you had mentioned this to me earlier, and I thought it was a brilliant observation, is that our, our evils are unnamed or unknown. And that's a perfect parallel for what Nolan does here with the Nazis being, you know, faceless on the scene, but present. And the thing about the euphemisms on all sides of the political spectrum in regards to the war on terror, right? I mean, just the war on terror itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's endemic in our culture, this inability to name that which is evil. And yet and we, we, have to live we live to with it? it. Yes, exactly. And, it's, and it puts people, I think, in a terrible psychological place especially young people because it's the young who go off and fight our wars for us. As you said, we live in an age in which the military, uh, first of all, we have politicized war, but but when it actually comes to real war, we expect other people to do it for us.
0: Yeah, and society is very isolated from a volunteer army that is therefore mm-hmm. very small as a proportion of the population. And these two are facts that we have to deal with. Most people will not get an experience of warfare any more realistic than a movie, mm-hmm. and this is in a certain sense a great happiness. Who wants to? war. But in another sense, it means that political ideas and ideas about life become ungrounded because half of mm-hmm. politics is uh, alien. We know some things mm-hmm. about peace, at least. We know nothing about war. And that's why it's so important to have movies like Dunkirk and to show yes. them, especially to young people, so that their formative experiences and ideas are not entirely
1: groundless. Yes. Growing up, people of my generation and older, to my, up to my parents, of course, we grew up surrounded by the veterans of the great volunteer and drafted armies of World War I and II, and to a lesser extent, of Korea and Vietnam. The Young people today aren't surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses, if I can borrow an expression from the New Testament, that we were of the Second World War. And, yeah, I think it's critical that teenage people—I teach, I teach teenagers history every day, and it's my job. And, yeah, I, I wrote to my colleagues and said, you need to take your students where we need to arrange to show this film for our boys and, and our and girls as well, but especially our, our young men, uh, those boys who are becoming young men, I should say. It was a very powerful film. I, I haven't been affected by a film like this in years, if ever. And I, I think it's because it was such a brilliant exposition of the realities of war for, for those of us who, who have never seen war. In some sense, this has become a necessity.
0: We have moved, like it or not, from a civilization based on words to a civilization based on images. Just like Churchill spoke his speeches and expected that they be listened to over the radio and read in the papers, in mm-hmm. those days, newspapers carried political speeches as yes. they had for centuries. So also in our times, you might hear sound bites of speeches. Almost nobody listens to long speeches. And also right. the politicians themselves avoid giving real speeches, whether yes. it's set piece speeches on occasions or just hearings and the few verbal confrontations that serve. Survive in Congress, they're mostly looking for sound bites because that's how you fundraise and that's how you stir up your base. Yes. It's remarkably limited and petty and has no power of bringing people together.
1: Unless somebody Uh, makes uh, such a
0: gaffe that everybody laughs at them together, although even our political humor is super polarized and partisan at this point. Yes. The only solution we have right now, but a very powerful solution, is uh, showing this kind of movie. Mm -hmm. Churchill put in images, those speeches turned into the images of human beings with their lives and their flesh, their blood and guts, their fears and hopes, and the whole drama of the evacuation of Dunkirk, that's what you have. Nolan puts Churchill in motion.
1: Yeah, As we've sort of made this shift to a more visual culture, people, I don't think, would respond in the same way to verbal rhetoric and um, definitely lost its power. But when we see these images on the screen, suddenly, as you said, it's a, it's a marvelous translation. It's almost as if this film, in a way, becomes a visual representation of that speech.
0: Yes. Even the people who read their Churchill speeches, people who would know two famous speeches, the blood, toil, tears and sweat speech and mm-hmm. the we shall fight on the beaches speech, which was given on the occasion of Operation Dynamo, the evacuation mm-hmm. at Dunkirk. If somebody tells you about blood, toil, tears and sweat, what does that really mean? If somebody right. tells you that without victory, there is no survival, what does that mean? Well, with Nolan, you find out there is a certain Mm -hmm. remarkable power of images that is lacking in words. The immediacy of fear and hope that comes from recognizing the images of human bodies on screen with all the moral and intellectual consequences, people in the theaters are really scared and really impressed by what's happening because they recognize that this is about human beings like themselves. Mm-hmm. And starting from this equality and mortality in the emergency of the danger... Nolan builds up level after level of sophistication to try to tell a story. One thing that doesn't seem to have received much notice is that the three timelines of the movie have a certain Mm -hmm. logic to them. There's a story that happens on the beaches of Dunkirk, a week of waiting, of becoming sick with fear and Mm -hmm. a certain kind of breakdown where you have to ask yourself, do you just follow orders and sit there or what? What is left Mm -hmm. to do? Almost all possibility of action has been canceled. You're stuck suspended in fear and at best hoping for some kind of deliverance. Then there's a second story that takes place over a single day. The coming to the aid of the soldiers of the large independent fleet of small boats from the channel ports of England and of course the Mm -hmm. larger vessels of the navy. And then the shortest of stories that takes place over only one hour, this third Mm -hmm. story is the story of a few pilots that quickly turns into the story of one pilot. And each of these three is announced in titles with a name and a duration. Now, these three different timelines are scrambled and he shifts from one to the other in ways in that are not obvious at first, Mm -hmm. but you do begin very early to notice something that you live in fear with very little chance of relief throughout the movie. And the other thing to notice, of course, is the climax. Mm -hmm. At the climax, we have this one man, a pilot. He gives you this evidence of British heroism, of not giving up, of flying on fumes if you have to. Even after his mission is complete and he has to land, he realizes that his wheels aren't coming down. And so he just cranks the train, as much as he can, without giving up, as his mm-hmm. falling and eventually manages to land. Then you get this heroic scene of this pilot. The first time you actually see his face Mm -hmm. is silhouetted against the darkening skies of evening. He sets fire to his ship fairly professionally without any sentimentality. And Mm -hmm. then you see he's prepared to be captured by the enemy. The, The climax was not just about delivering salvation from the air, relief from the bombers and the strafing fighter planes. But it's also about sacrifice. Mm -hmm. This man has walked into what might be death for him for the sake of helping his fellow soldiers. And you see, therefore, in him a kind of heroism that is not present anywhere else in the story. Now, Nolan doesn't make much of this because he wants to insist Mm -hmm. on the equality of we're all in it together. But that does not make every story the same. And it does not make every soldier the same just like we pointed out, the protagonists we follow most of the story are really not at all admirable. No. and it Understandable, is... but in need of excuse by extreme circumstances. In exactly. this case, necessity is about to overpower justice, and there's a risk that some horrifying thing might be done in desperation. Whereas in this other case, you see a man whose heroism goes towards sacrifice, and that gives you two meanings of taking your fate in your own hands. As you mentioned earlier, that you see how men confront their fate. Some people try to save themselves by rejecting orders, and other people try to take their fate in their own hands by fulfilling those orders to the hilt, going mm-hmm. even beyond the orders they have received in the direction pointed out by those orders.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that struck me just now as you were saying that is that the sense that for some people in this film, there's a loss of agency that comes by the enforcement of waiting and how they react to that is very telling. In each of these threads of the narrative, we see people reacting very differently. But in each thread, we get an an example uh, of waiting heroically. And when one thinks of Kenneth Branagh's character on the mole, we get an example of at sea acting heroically in a very mundane capacity. And that's Mark Rylance's character have this physical hierarchy the supreme examples in the air and yes. in our conversation yesterday you pointed out too uh, you know this relationship though between the reaction of the soldiers which is which nolan gives us on the screen for you to the air force officer and it because of how he's framed the narrative we get the perspective we understand why the soldiers say that but we also understand what has really happened and what real heroism has been done on their behalf even though they are unaware of it
0: Yes, Nolan seems to have picked up straight from Churchill's speech about Dunkirk that soldiers were complaining that the Royal Air Force hadn't done enough. Where were they while we were dying? And he says, I have to talk about this. I have to point out that they did their best and they they did better than anybody. And of course, the people on the beaches only saw the enemy fighters that got through. They didn't see any of the fights that heroically limited the damage the German planes could do. Nolan tries to complete that by showing you the perspective from the air that the soldiers Mm -hmm. at Dunkirk didn't have. Their experience on the beaches was woefully incomplete and could turn very ugly, actually, in their resentment against the Royal Air Force, whereas they are grateful to the Royal Navy, for example. And so Churchill not only speaks up in favor of the Royal Air Force, but he goes forward to make a case that you also see Nolan make. Churchill says in that speech that these men, the young pilots of the Royal Air Force, are the equals, no, the superiors of the Crusaders and of the Knights of the Round Table, Mm -hmm. because in their case alone is the heroism of war still an individual possibility. Everywhere else, as you see with the beach at Dunkirk, there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of men, none of whom can individually make a difference. Mm-hmm. none of whom holds his own fate or that of others in his own hands. But that is not the case with the pilots. They are each individually responsible and have the power, because of their machines, to inflict great damage or to do a great work of saving.
1: An interesting parallel, too. We had guests at our home yesterday, and I was encouraging them to see the film. They have teenage sons. And one of the things that we ended up discussing is how, on the one hand, we have the pilots who are in these small, flimsy by our modern standards, uh, you know, technological devices. And yet the, the great technological achievements in previous warfare was always the warship. And we see how vulnerable the warships become things in which you are trapped in this film, as if the power and the safety that they embody is also comes at a tremendous disadvantage as well. And so I thought that was an interesting contrast to the pilots and their heroism.
0: And so this is a remarkable thing, just like the climax of nobility in Churchill's speech. So also in Nolan's movie, you have a pilot there. I don't think mm-hmm. this is a coincidence.
1: Mm -hmm. well it's also I'm also a musician and one of the things that I was listening for and was interested in to see what would happen with with music and sound design in the film and we've got our first moments of clearly audible tonal music when the pilot turns his plane back, he's running out of fuel and he's trying to decide what to do next and he decides that even though he's going to run out of fuel he's going to return to combat and continue and that's the first moment in the entire film that tonally recognizable music is heard and it's just two chords
0: I hadn't noticed that I was busy being scared of what's happening. So, <laughs> so tell us about
1: it. Well, first of all, the thing that I was curious to see is, is what he would do with music in this film. It was interesting to me, reading the credits, that there is no recognizable tonal music. There is scoring. One of the things they did was take ambient sounds, but apparently they used a pocket watch that belongs on Nolan to create some of the sound effects. Very antique device by modern standards. I thought that was a beautiful thing. A sort of elegiac touch. The sound design is primarily instrumental music that's taken and digitally played with. And so you get a tonal background that's manipulated, but it's not musical. It's not recognizably musical. No, and you're this right. Rate...
0: There is uh, an effect. They use... To create the illusion of continuous ascension in tone yes, to heighten the yes. suspense. There is the clock you mentioned, which is used to enforce this ticking time. The mm-hmm. desperation: will these people be saved? And at the same time, to enhance your sense of your mortality, because it's a heartbeat tick-tock that yes. plays throughout yes. the movie.
1: Yeah, the shepherd tone is the is the technique that where sound is manipulated to give the sense of continual rising, like a crescendo. That, but there's actually no crescendo necessarily in volume. It's done with pitch and other things. And so the one time that you begin to hear tonal, recognizably tonal music, it's just very briefly, uh, and it's basically two chords, is when the plane turns to go back. The composer, Benjamin Walfish is his name, I think, plays around with one of the movements from Elgar's Enigma Variations. Of course, Edward Elgar is one of the great English late romantic composers. And the Enigma Variations is what's interesting about this film And about the variations is there's so many interesting ways in which the piece of music in the film have parallels. I'm just going to focus very briefly on a couple. One is that each of the movements in Elgar's variations is a portrait or a reflection on a personal friend of his. But the theme the piece is based on, you never hear it stated clearly in the piece. And it also is an original theme, but it was a counter melody to a very well-known popular tune. Uh, But nobody to this day knows what Elgar took that secret with him to the grave. To this day, musicologists have struggled, and patriotic British tunes have often been proposed as the solution to that puzzle. That's the enigma of the variations. One variation is used in the film, and that's known as Nimrod, based on a friend, Augustus Jaeger, a critic, and he was also his publisher. And Jaeger, of course, is German for hunter, and Nimrod, of course, from the book of Genesis is the patriarch, very briefly discussed, who was a mighty hunter among men. Elgar was largely a self-taught musician. It took him a very long time to establish himself in his profession, and he was very discouraged and on the verge of giving up, and Jaeger was trying to encourage Elgar not to give up, and he brought up Beethoven's Sonata for Piano, known as the Petitique, the slow movement, which is elegiac, and the opening chords of Nimrod echo that opening chords of that slow movement of Beethoven, and that gave Elgar the encouragement to continue, and so he creates this variation and the variation is musically in the style of a British hymn tune with a jagged melody line that was very popular among cathedral composers in the late 19th, early 20th century. And Elgar compositionally puts a lot of things into the piece. He basically creates this slow building crescendo Tensions that are very slow to resolve, and just as we think they're resolving, he introduces new tensions, dissonances and passing tones and other things. There's this constant sense of striving and groping, of loss and beauty and pain, all at the same time in one grand crescendo almost. Perfect mirror for what Nolan does in this film. And the second point I would make about Nimrod will be instantly recognizable to British audiences. Nimrod is played every year at the Cenotaph Monument in London. On Remembrance Sunday, when the British military and the royal family and dignitaries of the government and ambulance rescue service people and so forth lay wreaths to honor the British war dead, especially of World War One and World War II. And there's a prescribed list of music that is played in the course of that long memorial Nimrod that's always played. Most British cathedrals and even country churches will have a military band or local brass band or the organist will play that on Remembrance Sunday. And in the film, the composer takes Nimrod and he stretches it, played eight times slower. As we move toward the moment of heroism in the film, the ambient sound is slowly replaced by this great digitally, uh, electronically, or a musically elongated version of Nimrod. And finally, we get a quotation of it in the actual time the piece is played. An emotional and elegiac tribute. Our American listeners, it's something you need to know that there's a very real reason that this piece is chosen, not only just for its beauty and its structural relationship to the film, but because of its connotations in British culture.
0: That's quite impressive, and you're right, it does seem like the music harkens to the film and brings out a certain version of heroism that's very important for Nolan, that he mm-hmm. seems to suggest speaks to our times. But it also prepares this last theme of our own discussion, the fact that somehow memory and pain are tied up together. Mm-hmm. The, the use of the music that's, that signifies patriotism really brings that out, Patriotism itself is some kind of combination of beauty and pain. The dead of the country are the only people wrapped up in the flag. Mm -hmm. The flag is beautiful, but that is still an ugly thing. So also with the intention of the movie, it seems like Nolan is more aware than any other movie maker that without pain, without great fear in the experience of the movie, there is nothing that is memorable Mm -hmm. and that somehow this is what we are in need of. The problem with our anxieties is that they are neither here nor there. They do not have any fixed point, nor do they have any limits, and they do not tell us what to do about our situation. Instead, they make us restless. Mm -hmm. We are neither active nor contemplative. We're just restless. And it seems like this alternation of danger and relief, this long, slow, somewhat tortuous movement from dissension to resolution is like the movie's attempt to force us to face fear and then to come to an earned sense of relief. Yes, And at the same time, the, the fact that the movie is a true historical event anchors it somewhat and tells us where we stand to where people stood before. The movie doesn't blame the British for the catastrophe to which they came, but instead points out how they dealt with their crisis. Mm -hmm. By extension, it suggests the same thing about our situation. It is in some sense our fault that we are again in a crisis of confidence, but the needful thing now is to understand it and to deal with it. And we can't do that if we don't experience its seriousness.
1: No, and I think it took a British filmmaker to grapple with that, both because the British, of course, are elder cousins in America, and many of the things that they go yes. through we seem to follow. A parallel that struck me, I mentioned yesterday, is that it reminded me of a, an earlier British film, the 1958 film, A Night to Remember, about the Titanic, another disaster where most of the people had no role in it. They simply found themselves in this horror and had to deal with it. That film, like Nolan's, focuses on well, what happens to people, including people who survive, who are not particularly noble, and uh, people who die who are. Years ago, after seeing a night to remember and read the Walter Lord book on which it was based, but then I also read a book by Walter Lord called The Miracle at Dunkirk. And Lord had interviewed hundreds of participants in Dunkirk, including the Germans. The one thing that struck me about the book that I've never forgotten: a Titanic second officer, Charles Lightoller, who survived the sinking, acted very heroically. Was tossed into the water as the ship sank and managed to keep an overturned lifeboat afloat upside down with the men standing on its hull. For hours until they were rescued by the Carpathia. In his old age, he had a yacht, and when the call came for ships to serve evacuating men at Dunkirk, Lightoller himself went. What I didn't realize, and you pointed out to me, was that the character that Mark Rylance plays is Lightoller, and I really love the fact that Rylance's character is a reflection of Lightoller, so that heroism can come from anywhere if you choose to be noble and you choose to take that sacrifice on yourself. Kenneth Branagh's character, in another way, exemplify that as well.
0: Yes, so this uh, Mark Rylands character is remarkable, and you're right, he's based on Light Lightoller. That is a true story. Lightoller, like the character in the movie, refused to have the Navy take his Mm -hmm. boat. Instead, he sailed himself to Dunkirk. Like the character in the movie, he crammed his boat so full that the Navy couldn't believe how come he managed to get 55 men out of there. It was an Mm -hmm. amazing achievement. The, it also shows uh, a certain kind of nobility that a man whose career was ruined for no fault of his own and whose achievements in saving lives in the wreck of the titanic were never acknowledged much less honored or rewarded nevertheless when the nation needed him mm-hmm. showed this kind of patriotism it's yes. uh, it's, it's worth noting could almost wish that his name had been kept in the movie
1: rather yeah, I than changed
0: yeah. but i i it, do too but either way it is a very british kind of heroism because it is so understated Yes. The character in the movie barely mentions that he had a son in the Royal Air Force who got killed. There is a plaque Mm -hmm. that's the only thing that really shows you beyond any doubt. And that, again, is taken from the story, the true story of Lightoller. Yes. It's quite an amazing story and so discreetly put into the movie so as not to overtake the narrative or to become sentimental. This is part of the use of heroism, like you mentioned, the other great character, Commander Bolton, played by Kenneth Branagh, one of the great Shakespeare actors and directors of our times. These are fairly stoic men, Mm -hmm. and as the story unfolds and the chaos becomes deadly... You see why they have to keep emotions under control lest destruction ensues whenever people lose their cool horrible things happen Mm -hmm. and so they try as best they can to get control of their emotions to use their minds to calculate what to do in the situation so that they can save people's lives. That too is a characteristic British view of moderation and understatement and self-control. And I think we will close on that note. We hope to have shown you things that are not immediately noticeable and that have been ignored by the critics, unfortunately. They give us the chance to to come up with all these, we hope, important insights.
1: Yes, I hope that you've seen the film, and if you haven't, you will see it. high thyself to the theater and get thyself a ticket. And if you have seen it, you will encourage others to see it. It's an astounding piece of both popular art, and, and I think of true art as well.
0: Yes, it's what we have by way of a common experience and by way of a political rhetoric. I hope it is something that we all can share in and indeed spread the word about. And with that, we will close. I have more podcasts on Christopher Nolan, so you'll hear from me again soon. Eric, it was great talking to you, and soon enough we'll have to go back to our own series of Hitchcock podcasts interrupted for this great event.
1: We're the interruption, but I do look forward to talking about Hitchcock and some other great films of the past, too. Thanks for
0: joining me again. Thank you for your
1: special insights into the music.
0: It's irreplaceable, and I'll talk to you again soon.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Edith. Bye bye. Bye bye.